listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast, the Guitar Repair Podcast, the podcast about guitars, whatever you want to call it. I uh, it's so early, man. I'm I'm doing. I'm trying to find time to do this show, and it's difficult. You know, I got a baby at home. I've got a full time job, and uh, and then some because I also, um, you know, I make guitars. I've never really talked about it on the show before, but I do. I make guitars. I usually make about one per month, and uh, it takes a lot of time. You know, I just—it's hard to find time to do this show, and I'm finding time to do it because a because I love it. It's kind of a—it's kind of a fun thing for me to do. It's something I've always wanted to do, and b because uh, it's spreading the word and doing exactly what I hoped it would do. It's bringing new customers to my repair shop. So, um, yeah. Mission accomplished, and it's fun. I don't know. It's like I say, it's hard for me to find time to do it, but I'm finding time to do it this morning, and uh, so it's a little early for me, and so it'll be interesting um, to see how coherent I am at this hour. Anyway, things are well in my world. I hope. Uh, I hope it's the same for you. It's the weather is finally warming up in Seattle. I got my garden in over the weekend. My wife and I uh, like to plant a garden every year, and uh, we missed last year because she can't. She couldn't garden. Did you know pregnant women aren't supposed to garden? Seems weird, doesn't it? But yeah, so last year, you know, my wife was pregnant. We didn't put in a garden because um, I didn't want to do it by myself. So this year, the baby's born. So we are doing a garden and. Uh, I don't know why I'm telling you about it. This This is not a gardening show, by the way, <laughs> just in case. Uh, yeah, don't turn it off. Well, we'll get to the guitar stuff. Just hold your horses, okay? Uh, I put in, well, we, my wife and I put in the garden, and uh, it always reminds me, I love doing it because it reminds me of my youth. I grew up on a farm. Well, my my dad was a farmer, and... Uh, and his dad was a farmer, and his dad's his his dad was a farmer. Like, going back five generations, or maybe even more, I mean, as far back as I can uh, find out about, they were farmers. So I'm like the first non-farmer in my patriarchal uh, line for, I don't know, I don't know how many years, hundreds of years probably, maybe, maybe a thousand years, I have no idea, but, um, and there is a guitar, there is a guitar aspect to this, I promised but uh that people could because people always ask me um how i got into guitar repair and um part of it is that i just love fixing things it's just a natural 
I don't know. I just have this inclination. This um, I just love to fix things. So, uh, and I love guitars. So it was just always something that I was always tinkering with was uh, uh, guitars. And I don't know if you know this about farmers, <laughs> but uh, they are well known for being able to fix anything. And there's a reason for that, you know, if you can imagine, I mean, farmers use all kinds of equipment, right? And they're out in a field, out in the middle of nowhere, and something breaks. And I mean, they they use all kinds of crazy stuff that you don't, you wouldn't even think about, but something breaks way out in the middle of nowhere. They have very few choices. They can either try to haul the equipment into town and have it fixed there, or they can pay some uh, dude a whole ton of money to come out to the field and fix it, or they can just try to fix it themselves right there with what they got, and that's usually who, what what happens. And uh, so I think that just it's just in my blood to fix things. That's anyway. That's my theory. It it's probably uh, baseless, but yeah, farmers well known for fixing things, and I was a farmer at one time. Uh, worked on my dad's farm, but so anyway, gardening always reminds me of that. And here I am telling you about my garden, and it's too early to talk about anything. What What are we gonna do? Let's Let's read some questions. You can submit questions to me by going to ericdaw.com, e r i c d a w dot com. Click on the contact link. Send me a nice email, or send me some hate mail. I'm I've been really let down. I'm not getting any hate mail. Come on, you guys got to step it up here. I'm making fun of Kiss. I'm making fun of uh, uh, Bigsby's. I'm making fun of... I mean, come on, send me some hate mail. No, I'm just kidding. Don't send me hate mail. Well, you can if you want. I'll read it on the air. I'd love to. Uh, Anyway, go to ericdaw.com, click the contact link, send me an email. The other way you can participate in the show, and I would love it if you would do this. um, Not many people are doing this, but... Uh, there's a phone number I've set up. You just you call it and you leave a message. I'm not going to answer it. You can call it four in the morning if you want. It is if I can remember the number seven five seven 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 four eight four eight two seven five seven 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 four eight four eight two. Yeah, and uh, you can call that number, leave a message, and uh, through the magic of technology, it's somewhere out there in internet land that gets recorded and then emailed to me. It's pretty slick. So, uh, yeah, submit your questions. Here we go. Let's read some letters. We get Yes, I do. I get stacks and stacks of letters. And this one is from Steve. Hi, Eric. I enjoy your podcasts. Thanks, Steve. Let's just bask in that for a moment. I enjoy your podcasts. My question is how to make a choice between a fret job and a new neck. Both options are relatively expensive. Considerations I think of include intrinsic value or vintageness and simply liking the shape and heft of existing versus wide-open option picking. What other considerations would you add to help decide which way to go? Thanks, Steve. Well, Steve, I tell you, um, I almost always uh, would recommend 
refretting a neck rather than replacing it, unless you just don't like the neck. Now, uh, it depends on the guitar, and you brought up some good points here. I mean, uh, if on on a vintage guitar, you, I mean, if if that's a guitar that left the factory with that neck, then I don't know why you would even consider replacing it. Um, and if you don't like the neck, then why do you have the guitar, right? Uh, but replacement necks are plentiful, and uh, the options are wide open. Like you say, um, there's some of the some of the better companies are. Uh, USA Custom makes great necks. They'll make it right to your specs. You know, they'll make whatever you want. Uh, Music Craft is another one that are making excellent necks. Um, I like all parts necks uh, a whole lot. You can get them unfinished, and they really don't have the custom options available, but they do have several different, uh, like, off-the-shelf necks that are just fabulous. So, um, if you're into parts casters, that's easy uh, to be replacing necks. And if if you're just if you've got a parts caster and the frets are worn out and you want to replace a neck, then that makes sense. But I don't know. You know, refretting is not that expensive when you consider the fact that uh, to replace a neck, right? It has to be painted. You have to have a nut installed. You have to put tuners on it. It has to be set up. It might need to have the frets leveled just a hair. Um, it's really uh, probably cheaper to have the neck refretted unless it unless it has like a a bad problem with the truss rod or something like that. But um, yeah, I I would almost always tell you um, refret over over neck replacement. But um, unless you just don't like the neck, that's what I would say. So. There you go. Thanks for the email. This one is from Zach. Hi, Eric. I just listened to episode three, and I loved it. Isn't this nice? People are so nice. The Jason Lawler interview was great. You know, that was great. That was a lot of fun, man. Uh, Jason Lawler is... What a cool guy. Uh, Okay, anyway, back to the email. Thank you for addressing my base setup question. Oh, yeah, I read your question uh, in last episode. And here's your new question. Mm -mm. I have a setup question. I love doing setups on my guitars, and I enjoy making them play great. Can you please address the nut and how it relates to the setup? This might sound silly, but when I do a setup, the bridge, the pickups, the tuners, the truss rod, electronics, they all have moving parts that can be adjusted, measured, and tinkered with. I look at the nut, and there it sits, and I'm not sure what to do with it other than measure the relief at the first fret and check the angle of departure. I've never made a nut. How difficult actually is it to make one, and what tools do you really need or would you recommend? I love shopping at Stumac, but according to them, I need all kinds of files, vices, and measuring tools. Is bone the way to go? What other materials should I consider, and does the material affect tone as much as people say? Please give us your take. Thanks from Zach. Uh, yeah, well, there, Stumac is kind of right. There are a whole lot of different tools you need to really properly do a nut. Um, each string needs a different file. Each slot needs a different file, uh, because each slot needs to be a different size for each string. And depending on the string gauge you're using, um, or if you're, if you've got, uh, I mean, you know, you have to have a, in a shop like like mine, I have to have files for 
all the way from, you know, nines up to bass strings, right? So, yeah, you need a lot of files, and those files are expensive. I, I agree, they are expensive. Um, so probably for the amateur do-it-yourselfer, unless you just have a whole bunch of money to throw around, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to be buying um, nut files because uh, it's cheaper just to have me make one for you. Uh, but it can, you know, you could probably do it on the cheap with... Um, they have a set of three files where each file is double-sided, so there's six, basically, um, sizes on three files. Uh, and that is... I don't remember. I'll have to look up the price, but maybe it might be a hundred bucks for those three files. But um, and then bone, yeah, is the material I recommend. Uh, plastic nuts are just, uh, yeah, they're cheap, and they—I don't think they sound good at all. I mean, you know, there is a tone difference, um, and that's traditionally. I mean, you know, everybody says that. So uh, I don't really consider any other materials other than bone, unless you want to talk about ivory, um, which is, there's, it's, it's illegal. It's, there's a ban on ivory. You can get ivory that uh, is pre-ban. In other words, it was harvested. Man, what a sick word, huh? Uh, harvested uh, <laughs> from off an elephant's face. Um, before the ban was implemented, but uh, there's also uh, there's also fossil ivory, and I have a pretty big chunk of that at home that I sometimes make uh, nuts out of, um, and it's fossilized mammoth ivory. It's like you know, ten thousand years old, um, uh, but it sounds very similar to bone. So, I mean, it's it's a whole lot of trouble to go through, but I love the way it looks. Real ivory, modern ivory, not fossilized ivory, uh, has more of a woody tone to it. It's not as brittle. It's not as harsh sounding as bone. Uh, it, it's it's got a different sound to it. But uh, regardless, yeah, bone. I mean, bone is so cheap and sounds so good and lasts way longer than uh, a cheap, crappy plastic nut. There are other materials. You know, you can use um, tusk. That's tusk with a Q, T-U-S-Q, another, you know, synthetic composite man-made materials. Uh, in my view, those are all plastic. I mean, that's what tusk is. It's synthetic. <laughs> it's synthetic bone. And uh, the key word there is synthetic. I, I won't use them. I think they're, I, yeah. The whole point behind the synthetic man-made stuff is that it's a cost-cutting thing. You know, these companies don't want to have to pay somebody to, to hand-make a bone nut, so they use these composite materials. <clears throat> they can inject the stuff into a mold, make a synthetic nut, give it a fancy name, and then you got tricked. So it's a scam. Yeah, use use bone. Anyway. Well, your question about setup, <clears throat> how it relates to setup is that the nut really has to be dialed in. It's just exactly perfect uh, for a proper setup. So the height of the slots relative, or the depth, I guess, of the slots relative to the first fret, um, they have to be just right. If if those slots are are too shallow, then when you depress the string, uh, you raise the pitch so much um, that you have bad tuning problems, 
right? And if the slot is too deep, then you have um, buzz buzzing on your open notes. It buzzes against the first fret. And um, knowing just exactly right where that slot needs to sit is something that... Um, it's measurable, but it's more of an experience and a more of a feel thing to me. But I'm sure that there are other ways to do it. That's just the way I've done it. It's just a it's a measurement thing. What I do to check um, to check the relief, I guess you could call it, uh, at the nut is I uh, depress the string, whichever string, on the. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, on the third fret, and then tap the string right above the first fret. And you want to see just a tiny, tiny little bit of movement right there. If you have a, if you have a lot of movement, I mean, really, it, it should just be, there should just be just enough space there to slip like a piece of paper or maybe a business card in there. Um, if there's a lot of movement, then the slots are too high. And if there's no movement, the slots are too low. And, uh, yeah, you were right to talk about the angle as well. The The angle of departure towards the tuners has to be slanted back. Otherwise, you get weird little sitar overtones. So it really is, there's, there's a whole art to making a nut and to dialing in a nut. And it's a big part of a setup, a really big part of a setup, because it makes a big difference in how well the guitar is going to play. So, um... Yeah, you know, it's something, if you really want to get into it, you could buy the files, but they are expensive. So that's my take. But thanks for the email, Zach. Next question is from Jesse. Jesse was asking on Facebook, I don't understand why DeMarzio, Gibson, Seymour Duncan don't have a larger selection of cream pickups. I don't want zebra or black. I want double cream. (laughs) Well, um, yeah, humbuckers right so double black double white zebra black and white and then there's double cream and the reason that you don't see many double cream pickups is because demarzio actually has a trademark believe it or not they have trademarked double cream humbuckers and so gibson seymour duncan nobody nobody else really makes double cream pickups with rare exception. There are companies that are doing it. I don't know how they get around it. Um, You know, if they're overseas companies, they get away with it, I guess. I don't know. I guess maybe the trademark only applies to pickups made in America. I don't know. Or um, if if it's a pickup that was shipped with a cover, like a Seymour Duncan uh, that was shipped with a chrome or nickel cover on it, that might be double cream. Uh, but Duncan won't, you know, the, they they won't ship, or nobody will ship um, just a plain double cream humbucker to you. They used to make, you could you could order a, a, a custom one that was double cream, and they would ship it if it had a cover on it, and then you could take the cover off, and then you've got a Duncan double cream pickup. But I guess they don't do that anymore. I don't know. It's a weird deal, and. Uh, DeMarzio, I think, trademarked this back in the 70s, uh, which is odd to me because um, Gibson was the first one to do it. I mean, they were making, uh, they invented the humbucker in, in the 50s, and uh, a lot of those humbuckers were double cream. 
of course they had covers on them, but then, you know, guys would take the covers off and there you've got a double cream, uh, or I guess they were probably white and then they turned cream colored. I don't know. I don't know actually, but, uh, yeah, that's the reason why you don't see a larger selection of double cream pickups because DiMarzio has trademarked it. Um, I do see, uh, I looked online and it looks like bare knuckle in the UK is making double cream and I don't know. I don't know why. I guess it must, yeah, the trademark must not apply. Either that or DiMarzio just hasn't gotten around to uh, serving them some kind of uh, legal uh, notice. I don't know. So if you want double cream, you're pretty much stuck with DiMarzio. Uh, So that's the reason. Strange but true. Well, uh, let's let's play this call. I got a, a call to play. So here we go. Let's go to the phones. Hey, Eric. This is Jordan. Um, I was calling in to ask you a question about what I've read many times online, on guitar sites, and sometimes once in a while on forums, and, and it comes up a lot, something called per lacquer or P-U-R lacquer. And it's something that I've been curious about, just what exactly that is and uh its relation to maybe nitrocellulose lacquer or thin-skin lacquer or just just what is in that. And um, so it would be awesome if you could answer that question for him. All right, thanks. Yes, indeed. Thank you for the call, Jordan. Uh, P-U-R lacquer. I've seen it a couple times, too. Um, Duesenberg's, those uh, weird German-made guitars that... Um, that are very expensive, uh, and other guitar manufacturers as well. They're they're using this term "pur lacquer" or "pure lacquer." I don't even I don't know how they expect you to say it. "Pur lacquer," but um, I wasn't sure what it was either. I did some research, and uh, basically, it's a scam. It's a it's a it's a t- and you know everything's a scam. What can I tell you? Uh, that's just kind of how I operate. I look at everything as though it's a scam, <clears throat> and until proven otherwise, I just assume everything is some kind of trick. Uh, and that's a good way to... <laughs> I, I know it's pessimistic, pessimistic, but yeah, that's how I look at it. Um, yeah, P-U-R stands for polyurethane. Yeah, right. So uh, P-U-R lacquer... And they're using the term lacquer just in the general sense, meaning that it is some form of paint, right? P-U-R lacquer means it's polyurethane. So it's a tricked-up way of telling you that their guitar is polyurethane, uh, painted with polyurethane. Except they're able to use the word lacquer and it makes it sound better because everyone's looking for guitars that have a lacquer finish. And when they say lacquer, what you're really talking about is nitrocellulose lacquer, what they used to use back in the good old days on Fenders and Gibsons. Well, I think Gibson still uses it, and Fender does on some of their guitars too. But um, nitrocellulose lacquer is the preferred paint material for tone. It's an organic material. It, uh, it A lot of it has to do with plasticity. Um, polyurethane has plasticity to it, uh, and it's basically like if you were to take a, a guitar and and dip it in plastic, right? That's what 
polyurethane paint basically is. And so, and it, it does to the tone of the guitar exactly what it sounds like it's going to do. Um, it mutes it and basically inhibits a guitar from resonating as well as it would otherwise. Where lacquer has very little plasticity to it. It's actually very brittle. That's why lacquer cracks and checks and you get lacquer checking and lacquer cracks uh, on the old instruments because um, it doesn't shrink and expand. And the wood underneath it does just a little bit and as it shrinks and expands, the um, lacquer cracks. And so uh, lacquer having less plasticity and being a more brittle um, substance, uh, it's better uh, for the overall tone of the guitar. So that's why everyone uh, seems to prefer nitrocellulose lacquer. Anyway, yeah, P-U-R lacquer. It's a trick. (laughs) Okay, well, uh, let's take a quick little break here and we'll come back with the news. podcast is sponsored by Emerald City Guitars. Emerald City Guitars is the Northwest's premier vintage guitar store. In fact, it's uh, one of the world's most well-known guitar stores. We specialize in vintage gear. I say we because, hey, I work there. I'm the repair specialist. I've been there for uh, 13 years now, and uh, I do all the all the customer uh, repairs and all of the... Um, a lot of the restorations that happen on a lot of the gear that's that's uh, for sale there. You should check out Emerald City Guitars' website if you haven't. EmeraldCityGuitars.com. You will be astounded at the inventory. It is, it's really amazing, and I'm I'm blessed to work there. It's an awesome store. Uh, you should check it out. So, Emerald City Guitars, check it out. from Holman, Indiana, is Red with the Guitar News. Hey, Red. Hey, what's going on? Uh, what, what is going on? Uh, just another day in paradise. Well, uh, it is a, a strange month in guitar news, but uh, I'd love to lead with this uh, auction at Guernsey's in New York. Mm-hmm. There are 265 beautiful acoustic guitars Um going up on the auction block, very high-end, high-dollar guitars, including 10 hollow bodies made by John D'Angelico himself. Yeah, rare guitars. By the time I get this podcast posted, it will probably have already happened, but um, uh, I've, I looked at the auction, and it's, um, it's there are some amazing guitars there, and uh, I don't know, they're their reserve prices and their and their auction estimates to me seem really really high like on the order of like by a factor of 3 or 4 so it'll be interesting to see uh what kind of prices these these instruments get that's true and a lot of people are saying the same thing that the that the prices are through the roof and yeah. the, and they're kind of you know disappointed because they think that most of the people that can afford to 
buy these treasures are going to end up just buying them and it's going to they're going to collect dust in some collection and never get played. Yeah, so. well that's the de- that's the downside of all valuable guitars. I I feel like they are meant to be played and so many of them are in the hands of collectors that just put them in a glass case and then uh, they really don't get played much at all. But I guess that's the breaks. I don't know. Did did you see the the guitar that caught my eye was the one with all the pinup girls on it, the Nick Lucas um the Gibson Nick Lucas flat top with all the pinup decals on it. I did see that one. That is a gorgeous guitar. It's pretty cool, but it's it's terribly overpriced. <clears throat> which one was uh, which one was your favorite? The uh, the Martin OM forty five Deluxe. I mean, to me, that's definitely the um, the red violin of acoustic guitars. Yeah, yeah. There's a <laughs> lot. Only fourteen originally made, and yeah, I can't yeah. believe they have one. Yeah, there's a lot of um, 30s, 40s, 50s Martins in that auction, and uh, those are valuable guitars, especially the 30s and the early 40s Martins are, they're a lot of money. That's big oh, money. Talk about needing to be played. I mean, those guitars yeah. need to be in the hands of masters, you know, and, and being played and those sound to be projected for all to hear. I mean, that's why they were made as well as they were. And they also need to be maintained and cared for properly so that future generations can enjoy them. And uh, they, they need to be in certain, you know, climate-controlled environments uh, if, they're, if they're classic old uh, acoustic instruments. Oh, definitely. I mean, wouldn't you just cry if you got one in your shop that had a neck that was bowed from never having its, you know, neck adjusted or the strings loosened while it was in storage or in a too humid of an environment? I mean, wouldn't that just bring the tears? Yeah, (laughs) it does. I see it all the time, and it does. And the the trick about those old Martins is that they, and a lot of people don't realize this, but old Martins don't have truss rods. No, they don't. Martin was, um, they were kind of uh, almost arrogant about it, saying our guitars are so good that they don't need truss rods. And then uh, they started putting them in in 1985, I think, 1985 or 1986. Oh, late in the game. Yeah, real late in the game. So all those classic Martins, 30s, 40s, 50s, no truss rods. So if the neck is bowed, that's, uh, they're, they're hard to get straight again, And uh, but it, it can be done. I would even be nervous myself. I mean, I have worked on some guitars of some, you know, very famous people that most people would be nervous to be working on. And But if I had to correct a Martin neck that was bowed on an old 30 or 40s, especially the, the OM45 Deluxe, I would be shaking in my yeah. boots. And they say that uh, this Martin they have at the auction could fetch upward of seven figures. Can you believe that? That's amazing. That I don't know. Well, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what what these prices go go for. It'll be cool. Yeah, it's it's going to be good to keep an eye on uh, what happens at that auction. Yeah. So uh, there's lots of ways nowadays with technology to learn how to play guitar. There's the fret light guitar. There's lessons on Skype you can get from from really good guitar players. Um, I have run across something to me that is just absolutely fascinating that anybody could get into their hands as a way, a very non-threatening way to learn how to play guitar correctly called a Coach Guitar App. 
Um, it's uh, by Mano Maya. It's a free iOS app. Like for your and, phone? Yeah. And uh, it comes with four free songs, but what is so wonderful about it that I like so much, it's, it's a guitar method based on a visual method, so you learn to play without tabs or music theory. Mm-hmm. And I know, you know, when I was cutting my teeth, I don't know about you, we had to kind of get tab books, we had to watch people play. That's how I learned a lot, is by yeah. watching other guitar players. I'd watch their hand just as carefully as I could to see everything they were doing. Yeah, me too. Well, you did the same thing? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, one of my big breakthroughs was was buying a uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan uh, VHS, you know, of some concert, where and it had really good um, close-up shots of his hands. So mm-hmm. I, could, I could really see what was going on, and the same thing with... Uh, with Hendrix, I really liked Hendrix when I was, you know, a kid, uh, early teens, and those those uh, concert videos where they like it seems like in the '60s they got all artsy about about filming concerts and things, and you'd get uh, real nice tight close up shots on on their hands. And, oh, especially uh, during like really long solos, and they'd be right up close on the hand, and you yeah. could see all the technique of you know. Yeah, that helped me. I, I still don't read music. I never did learn how to read music. So tabs and mostly, I think I mostly played by ear. But yeah, so now you can get an app. There's an app for that, right? Yeah, there is. There is, and it's great because it takes that to you know the next level. It's um, it'll show high-def video detailing the fingering in slow motion. You can see how a riff is played. You can back it up and watch it again and again until you get it. Um, It does include tabs, and it has a color-coded finger system, so there's a different color for each finger. And uh, and then those dots are on the fretboard, so you know which, you know, where to put your fingers on the fretboard. And it even has a lefty option, which I thought is really cool. Yeah, that's cool. Lefties are often left out. Right. No pun intended. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, and it, after the four songs, each additional is three ninety nine, which seems like a lot. But, you know, I don't know if people ever, not everybody can afford uh, fancy guitar lessons. And if you're learning a good song, every week that's going to get you along pretty fast you know especially with this sort of a method so i was i was really impressed and intrigued with the uh, coach guitar app huh, that's cool yeah I, I, so. I know some teachers that um are adamant about uh, that you need to learn the basics you need to learn music theory you need to learn notes and scales and and uh, all the different chords and chord inversions and everything and they're probably right you know, but that's not the way I learned, and I don't think that's the way most people learn, so I don't know. But uh, I think the best thing is a good ear. There's no substitute for it. But anything that helps, like this app or uh, or lessons on YouTube or anything like that, anything that helps is is certainly good. Oh, yeah, and I think the most important thing is to make it fun. Right. You know, I would go after the tab books of my favorite bands and learn the songs that I loved and that really gave me a little more energy to, to want to play and to want to try harder to play and to want to learn those scales and all the chords and 
everything um, once I started to have fun with it. So I, I just thought the Coach Guitar app would be a great way for people to learn to play and uh, and make it fun at the same time. Yeah, that's cool. And hmm. make it interesting. So, yeah. yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. And uh, speaking of cool, um, Slash is working on a follow-up to his 2012 Apocalyptic Love album, and uh, he's inviting fans to check out the studio process in an online webisode series at uh, SlashOnline.com. And um, I thought it was pretty cool. It's a real low-key way to see how, you know, the musical creative process and how hard these things are actually worked on, <laughs> that they don't just come out of thin air and it's not a slacker right. type situation, you know, it's work and hours that go into that type of thing. And um, he'll be touring with Aerosmith this summer, starting at the Big Music Fest on July 11th in Kitchener, Canada. So um, I cool. thought that'd be pretty cool. Don't know what the album's going to be called yet. But, um, it's a lot of work it, to make an album. The, it is. It's like giving birth. Is like uh, what some rock star that I knew right. at one time said. Uh, does he because still, there is does, so much that goes into it. Does Slash still look like Cousin It with a top hat? I mean, I haven't seen a picture of him for, I, I feel like, 20 years. Does he still look like that dude that... You know what I mean? With the, I've never even seen his face. I've just seen his hair and the hat, right? Yeah, not many people have seen his face, I don't think. But yeah, he does look uh, pretty much the same. Wow. Um, he doesn't always wear the top hat, but that's kind of become uh, his little symbol. And um, But he usually has, you know, his hair in his face. And I wonder if that's a wig. Glasses on. No, that's his hair. You think? That is definitely his hair. <laughs> it's not like a Howard Stern situation where that, I mean, I don't know, maybe that's a, yeah, I mean, I always figured if you took, if you could take that wig off of Howard Stern, he would look like um, Woody Allen. Maybe it's a situation like, uh, you know, with Slash, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll believe you, I'll believe it's his hair. No, I got it on good authority, that's his hair. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh getting on with some uh this month in guitar history. It's kind of a sad month in guitar history because uh this is a anniversary. April 8th was the anniversary of uh when rock actually died or should I say committed suicide. That's when Kurt Cobain uh departed and went up to the big gig in the sky. Um so everybody's kind of, you know, mourning that this month and kind of remembering how he with all his simple but really great catchy riffs gave a lot of guitar players uh, a place to grab onto and start and have fun i mean i remember the first time i learned teen spirit i was like wow this is so easy yeah this is so much fun you know and um so it's kind of a sad month uh just because everybody's remembering uh remembering his passing i yeah. know there's a lot of better guitar players out there but he did have a certain style yeah and i i was i was a fan at the time i mean this is going back uh god i mean what, what's it been 20 years uh i was a fan at the time um he did write really catchy stuff and uh i mean you know i was into more angsty music back then i suppose but um I I really lost all respect for him when he killed himself, leaving that poor kid behind. Man, that's so sad. 
it was the biggest bummer. And I mean, really, if you look at it, you know, rock just kind of spiraled and circled the drain ever since. Yeah. It was kind of like we all lost our steam just because of this one person. Well, it was headed that, it was headed that way anyway, I think, but that's just, that's just me. But yeah. But you know, he sort of, you know, put the last nail in the coffin. Yeah, he did. And like I say, I lost all respect for him when, when he did that. But the guy ha- obviously had mental issues, right? I mean, you don't you don't kill yourself like that if you don't have mental issues. Right. Well, and we you know, talk about having, you know, everything in life. And I know. Still not being happy. I mean, could he was basically a rock star. Yeah, and if and if that and if that's not doing it for you, like if you're miserable being a rock star, walk away from it and change your name and move somewhere and be anonymous and and uh, live with your family. I mean, he had the money to do it. I don't know. That just that really that really bummed me out, man. <laughs> yeah, you know that's why I say it's a it's a sad month in uh, yeah. guitar history. I mean, to this day, I really can't. I can't even listen to the music really. I can't either. I can't either. Once in a while, I'll uh, sing a couple tunes, you know, like um, Heart Shaped Box or yeah. something, but I can't bring myself to actually put on the album and listen to yeah, it. it just, um, when I see a Nirvana shirt on somebody walking around town, I'm just like instantly bummed out. Just, oh, man. Yeah, it just soured me on the whole on the whole thing. Anyway. Yeah, total bummer. What else but, you got in uh, history? A couple of birthdays we got... Uh, Talk about old timers, man. Ace Freely is having a birthday, April twenty seventh. These dudes gonna be sixty three. Nice. <laughs> and Mike McCready of Pearl Jam is turning yeah. forty eight on April fifth. Yeah, cool. Yeah, Mike uh, Mike McCready lives here in Seattle, where I live. Yeah, he's a founding member of Pearl Jam, and I guess they're still kicking and yeah. still alive. He's a nice guy. I've met him a couple times. Have you? Yeah. Awesome. So, yeah, that's what we got for this month, and uh, I'll catch you guys next month, and hopefully the news will be a little hotter, just like the weather. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much, Red. Anytime. We'll see you next month. That was a segment that uh, Red and I recorded last week, and since that segment, um, the auction that we were talking about uh, at Guernsey's has happened. And so I thought I would revisit that. Um, it was really an interesting uh, deal. Uh, the auction estimates, I, like I said, were really high, and everybody was saying that they were. And sure enough, very few of those guitars sold, just a handful. Um, the two guitars we mentioned sold, the uh, the Nick Lucas with the uh, with all the pinup girls on it, the water slide pinup girl decals on it. That guitar was attributed to maybe maybe having been owned by Nick Lucas himself. But it had an auction estimate of 60 grand, which is just crazy. I think it sold for 15, or was it 17 grand? Uh, A fraction of what they had estimated. The other guitar uh, that we mentioned was that uh, 1930 OM, Martin OM 45 Deluxe. Um, It had, what did it have a, auction estimate of of two million uh kind of laughable really um but it did sell for a large sum of money 300 grand and uh it looks like martin actually bought that for their uh 
for their museum that they have there in uh, Nazareth, Pennsylvania, where they're located. And uh, so that was an interesting deal. You know, I, I kind of felt like that's how it was going to go. Most of those guitars went unsold, and I the, the article I read about it said that there was just a whole lot of grumbling <laughs> in the uh, audience, uh, people saying, geez, maybe they should lower the prices, you know, they get real. So that's how that went, and uh, it was interesting. I will post a link to the actual um, to the actual auction in the show notes there at ufoship.com or fretfiles.com. Uh, if you didn't already see that, maybe you listened to the show on iTunes and you didn't see the website, but yeah, you can go to fretfiles.com where there's show notes and a picture and all that jazz. I'll have a link there to it. So anyhow, let's take a break and uh, we'll be right back with more. So stick around. to here is the Black Lotus Project featuring Mitch Duran on guitar. This is a that was a track called uh, 20 Minutes Into the Future. And joining me now on the phone is Mr. Mitch Duran. How you doing, Mitch? Good. How are you doing? Doing great. I um I appreciate you joining me uh, on the show here. I've This is the first time I've talked to you even though I feel like we're friends. I feel like we're buddies now. Yeah, it feels like we've known each other for a while. I know you through, um, initially through the Art Bell Forum, Bell Gab. Yeah, that's right. And then somewhere along the line, we became uh, Facebook friends, right? Yeah. yeah. That's that's as real as it gets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but um, in talking to you on, on Bell Gab... Um, I really I wanted to have you on the show because I realized we had kind of a, a little bit of a similar um, background in guitar work. Uh, I worked uh, in an Ibanez distribution warehouse, right? And there's like, you know, two of them basically in the country and one on the West Coast, one on the East Coast. And I worked for the one on the West Coast where we basically took... Uh, you know, finished Ibanez guitars and set them up and did a quality control and any repairs that they might need and then shipped them out from there. And we just did guitar after guitar after guitar. And talking to you, I realized that you kind of had a similar situation. You worked for a company that we won't name, but you worked for a, a guitar factory somewhere there in California, right? Yep, yep, here in the Bay Area. Yeah. How long did you work there? Uh, around a year. Yeah. Was this was this a long time ago? Uh, it was a couple of years ago. Oh, okay. So not long ago. My stint. Yeah, not too long ago. My stint at Ibanez was in the mid to late nineties. 
Um, but uh, I, I was just really curious to hear about, um, and we won't mention the name of the company because I know you signed you signed an agreement. Yeah, right? I've signed tons of stuff. Okay. I'm sure I signed an NDA that would <laughs> uh, stop me from naming the company. Well, we won't name the company then, but let's just say sure. it, it was a guitar company and uh, basically a factory. And what uh, what kind of work were you doing there? Well, uh, mostly fret work. Um, after it was determined that I was uh, quick at doing it, they stuck me on fret work nonstop. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, it was set up on, on you know, uh, less full and strat style guitars, basically. Yeah. Uh, and then the occasional acoustic, you know, flat top or arch top. Hmm. A lot of fret work. <laughs> were these guitars that were made um, all there in-house? Um, most of them were assembled there from parts that were made in China. Oh, okay. And did they do, like, finishing work there, too? Paint and all that jazz? Or was yeah. Yeah, all kinds of finishing and installing frets and uh, the occasional just complete start-to-finish fabrication of a guitar. Wow. Uh, for prototype models and things like that. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, whenever an artist would need work on an instrument that was in town, we would, or that was even, you know, sending something in, we would do that warranty work for customers yeah. and shops. Yeah. He, that's funny. I, you know, they, they, uh, when I worked at Ibanez, this is, they eventually, you know, they moved me from quality control out into the, um, uh, warranty department so that anybody like on the West coast that had a problem with their Ibanez guitar, they sent it back to this warehouse. It was in Idaho of all places. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, so I was doing with one other guy, I was doing all this authorized, you know, Ibanez warranty work and it was interesting, but, and I wanted to like check stories with you because, um, there's a lot of guys that make guitars and a lot of boutique guys that make guitars and a lot of guys that make super high-end guitars and prestigious guitars, and those guys get a lot of respect, right? But yeah. most guys that work in guitar factories don't get much respect, and they're <laughs> really kind of low on the totem pole, don't you think? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess uh, they always say follow money, and if you look at you know, what someone gets paid in fact installing a fret to somebody, you know, doing it in their own time is a tech or, you know, in the back of a store. Uh, it's the difference between, you know, a minimum wage hour versus, you know, like a $200 pot. Right, for the same and, work. Um, yeah, for the same amount of effort. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it felt, when I worked there um it just it felt kind of soulless like it wasn't as fulfilling <laughs> as i thought working with guitars would be did, did you have the same experience eventually towards when i got really cranky and like we were doing you know installing a fret like five to eight necks a day or something like that it got to be like food your hands felt the worst I mean, we always made sure to do a good job on the frets and things like that. And 
it, it never got it was assembly line but it was still quality but it just uh it's not the same you're not allowed to really do it the way that you would if you were doing you know say three fret jobs a month and getting paid a couple hundred each right and spending your time on it you know and do and and making an individual art out of it yeah yeah the other um the other aspect of it that is pretty unglamorous is the basically the toxic cloud <laughs> that you live in uh, when you do work like that was did you have the same situation uh, oh by the it way was, it, hey, it, it's pretty crazy by the way uh, yeah. i'm i'm losing your signal just a little bit so talk good and uh -oh. loud into the phone let me see if i can adjust my frequency here about that is that better that is better yeah okay cool yeah, the toxic uh, cloud of chemicals, you were saying? Oh, yeah. Wood dust and paint fumes and solder smoke, right? I mean, did, did you have the same experience? <laughs> yeah, and buffing compound and everything else is just everywhere. Uh, yeah, and just the metallic, you know, doing frets, uh, you get this metallic uh, essence from, from uh, fret dust. Yeah, uh, that's in your hair and in your clothes and in your pores, basically. And you know, it, occasionally you'll get a sliver that hurts for the first couple of weeks, but after a while, it just kind of your hands, you know, you don't feel it or they're rejecting it or I don't know what's going on, but that you just uh, absorb yeah, it. There's definitely that, and there's some scary wood that uh, I remember filing on the rosewood, uh, especially, which uh, I don't think a lot of people know is poisonous, like most hardwood. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there'd be different quality, uh, different grades of rosewood would come in, and there'd be certain types that would scare me the most with, like, these orange streaks that were really oily. Mm. And, uh, you know, thankfully that stuff's pretty heavy, so it didn't get airborne as much. But still, you just, you know, you hear horror stories of people ingesting that stuff, and over time it has an effect. Yeah, it does. I mean, there, it's, it is carcinogenic, and... Not only that, but it's just, I mean, any kind of dust, if you breathe it enough, you're going to end up with, uh, like, COPD or whatever they call uh, emphysema nowadays, right? Right, yeah. I mean, it just isn't logically not good to have any kind of particulate in your lungs. Right. And the company... But, yeah, it's, it sounds, we're making it sound pretty pretty awful, and it... it there parts of it are like your hands will hurt and all this other stuff is true but you also do get to learn a lot and you get really efficient at, at doing setups or doing fret work or or whatever it is you're learn you're learning and you, you learn a lot about instruments that's a good point and there are good things there are good things yeah it's that's... hard to get that amount of exposure or training uh doing that type of work unless if you pay for school or some kind of program somewhere right, uh, right. so there there are positives uh, aspects, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And I learned a lot when I uh, when I uh, did uh, the quality control and the repair work at, for Ibanez. I did learn a lot, you know. But it's they weren't too concerned with um, they weren't too concerned there with employee safety. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, they were like right before the era of where that became really trendy. I guess so. I mean, this was twenty years ago. Yeah. And like you said, you know the hand, the pain in your hands and shoulders. I think I, I think I have permanent shoulder damage from from doing fret work, especially fret levels. You know where you're, you're pulling the file back and forth. 
yeah, it's just all the bumpy sort of resistance of that metal sort of contact. It kind of it kind of does a number that, and also after you clip a like on a Strat style guitar, we would clip the frets all the way out to the end. Like the the rosewood was slotted all the way through, right? And so the fret tang would go all the way out, right, uh, to the end of the fretboard. And so when you would clip that, you'd have this really sharp sort of pinched fret end sticking yeah. out. There'd be razor sharp at like multiple points on either side of the fretboard. And then you would take, you know, the, everybody uses that Stuart McDonald, uh, uh, flush file for the side. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, I mean, I use a bastard file now, but, uh, I was using that Stuart McDonald thing at the time, and just your knuckles, once you miss God, I know. Uh, the surface <laughs> going across all those razor-sharp, unfinished yeah. thread ends just was the worst sort of... Uh, I think it's the worst, uh, I don't know, immediate pain yeah. out of the whole situation. But then waking, so, you know, after doing a good month worth of 80 to 100 uh, necks worth of frets, you end up waking up with sort of aches in your hands yep. in the morning for the first sort of 45 minutes, or yep. at least I did. And that was when I started feeling like, oh, oh I might not have that much of a future here. Well, and it's, yeah, especially for a guitar playing, player. You know, it, yeah. it was affecting my guitar playing after right. the first uh, couple of months. But then once I was in pain, it got to be too much. But uh, I ended up, it felt like going to uh, a guitar repair school or something Yeah. for the amount of time that I was there, you know, and for the amount of stuff that I learned. So it was really, I'm grateful for that. And I got to work with some really cool people, but, uh, I don't think it's the best job for musicians, which, uh, is odd because every single person that I met there, except for maybe like the payroll lady was a musician and she might've actually played too. I'm not sure. Right. Maybe it's a funny uh, thing. Yeah. Uh, it's like a vicious sort of circle there. Yeah, it is. And I know exactly what you mean. I, I think my playing has suffered because of um, just damage to my muscles and hands. And and plus, you know, it kind of it kind of makes you not want to play as much when you're when you sit when you're sitting with a guitar and some sandpaper and a file all day long and you go home and you're, you're going to pick up a guitar. I mean, it kind of it, true. it kind of chased that out of me a little bit. Yeah, that's true. Like anything else, if you uh, passion your job, that some passion can shift away temporarily. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Um, <clears throat> I had a uh, I had a couple questions that came into the podcast that I thought I might swing by you because you're just the kind of guy that would know. Do you know anything about um, DiMarzio pickups and their their trademark on the double cream uh, humbuckers? I've heard of this, and it seems sort of ridiculous. What I have heard it does seem that ridiculous. They have a trademark it? on something that came before they existed, because from what I understand, if you take the cover off of a PAF, which is the early Gibson humbucker, right. Uh, you'll either find either double black or a cream black or a double cream. Going back to when did they start using those? Like uh, 58, 57? Yeah, 57, I think. Right. And so 
it just seems like nobody's acted on this trademark because I'm sure they could get that changed uh, and because nobody can create a double cream pickup except for DiMarzio, is that right? Yeah, unless um, you do a pickup that has different pole pieces. That's the only way around it. So, like, Carvin makes mm. pickups that are double cream, but they have those hex pull pieces. Is that the ones that have, like, 16 pull pieces going yeah. across? right, right. And Or they, if you do a, a a double cream pickup with where both sides are slugs or both sides are screws, I guess I guess you can get away with that. But their trademark is on a traditional pickup with a, a screw side and a slug side and double cream bobbins, which, like you said, I, and I totally agree, it's ridiculous because um, Gibson was doing it 20 years before DiMarzio came along and tried to trademark it and they also, did, did you know this? DiMarzio trademarked the term PAF Oh, that's just like cyber squatting or something, that's gotta be illegal. Well, and it, it's some kind of pickup, it's guitar squatting And it, it seems to me, and this has been going on since the 70s, but it seems to me that Gibson could easily challenge this. I I don't understand it. It does not make sense. It doesn't make sense, especially since, I mean, if you you think about the term PAF means patent applied for, which means Gibson was patenting that pickup, right? And then you trademark the term PAF. What the hell is that? Uh, It doesn't make any sense. Uh, And I don't understand if if these kind of things do stick. Um, Gibson... Uh, patented the humbucker, how is anybody else allowed to make humbuckers? Right. I don't get it. <laughs> we, need big, a, yeah, a, we need a guitar lawyer to help us. We need something to straighten out that mess. Yeah, I don't get it. I don't understand anyway. Because uh, there's a lot of things that have been trademarked and a lot of things that haven't and patented and this and that. that, that like, they, for example, they enforce um, headstock shapes. Like, you can't make the Gibson headstock shape or the Fender headstock shape without permission from Fender or Gibson. Which is a really weird control thing that came out of all those lawsuit guitars. Right, right. It's it's kind of silly how... And it, it, it ties into all of those people on forums that you see taking Epiphone Les Paul standards and, you know, slicing them up and adding wings and putting Gibson decals on them just because they like the look. Right. And they love the guitar. It's a weird thing. Uh, but that shape matters, and they're kind of controlling that. And it, it has to do not with making music, but with the market of selling guitars, I think. Yeah. I was talking to a guy that um, worked for Fender back in the 80s, and at some point during all of that uh, legal uh, uh, mess, um, at some point Fender actually had people that came to the boat dock and uh, intercepted a basically a full cargo boat full of Tokai strats and took um, wow. jigsaws and cut the tip off of the headstock of each guitar. Holy mackerel. Isn't that crazy? That's pretty wild. So somewhere out there, somebody's got a Tokai that has the tip of the headstock missing. A, a, a bunch That's of people. That's what all of those... That's where all those weird fish hook headstocks came from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's weird. The harpoon. Yeah, right. The harpoon, or the uh, the weird uh, hockey stick. 
uh, what was that? Uh, Charvel that the did Kramer, the hockey stick. Oh, Kramer. It was, yeah. yeah. God, that's an ugly neck. <laughs> well, actually, they got that from a less, uh, from an Explorer headstock shape. Oh, yeah, I guess that's right. If you think about it, that's like a precursor. Um, I wanted to uh, play some of your music, too, because I've heard it uh, online, and I was really impressed, man. What, uh, to me, it's, it's I'm, I'm calling it jazz. Do you call it jazz? Yeah, the, the tracks that are up there right now are kind of a jazz fusion uh, sort of thing that uh, has a little bit of sort of progressive kind of, elements yeah and right. it, but uh the we're working on an ep uh, that band's called black lotus project we're working on an ep that's gonna hopefully be done at the end of may cool uh, but most of it is uh like a straight ahead sort of jazz guitar and with you know mostly trio music with guitar bass and drums hmm. well you're a great player man and i really enjoyed the tracks thank you for letting me uh plug that stuff man yeah and I have this other band that I wanted to tell you about. It's a project that I'm doing with my wife that we were in a band together before called Snake River Conspiracy. Um, and uh, she was the singer and I played guitar. Uh, and that band broke up a few years ago. Uh, and it was before they got to finish, you know, before we finished the second record that was almost done. And the first record has a cult following going, so we're... I'm excited to be working on our new band, which is called Mojave Phone Boots. Mojave and Phone Boots. And she's singing, and I'm playing guitar, and I'm playing a bunch of other stuff. Oh, cool, man. I'm excited to hear that. That's great. Yeah. I wanted to tell you about that on here. Not really anybody knows about that, but wow. uh, it's what I'm working on. Where can people go to hear this uh, more of the Black Lotus Project? Uh, you can go to MitchellJDoran.com. Um, or facebook.com slash Lotus Fusion. Black Lotus Fusion? Yep, either okay. one of those. Cool. Thank you for letting me uh, plug that stuff, man. Yeah, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Uh, I think it was an interesting discussion about the dark side of, of guitar factory <laughs> work. Yeah, right? So, so depressing. Yeah, thanks so much, Mitch. All right, man, thank you. Take care, man. I mean, I'll see you on the uh, internet. Right on. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Well, that does it for this month's episode of the Fret Files podcast. I want to thank Michael Van Dieven over at ufoship.com for hosting the podcast. I want to thank Red with the news. And uh, thanks to Mitch for joining me here on the show and letting us hear some of this awesome music. This is another track from the Black Lotus Project. This is called... Lights of Fatima, or Fatima? Fatima, I don't know. Lights of Fatima, and, uh, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna let the whole song play out and let you enjoy it. It's good stuff, man. What a great player. Anyway, see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Thanks.